0: My name's Joe, and I'm one of the leaders here, and I want you to imagine with me a man shopping for Christmas back in July, and what I mean for that is he's actually on Instagram, and an ad pops up for something that his wife would like, and so he buys it, and he realizes that the gift that he just bought to have shipped for his wife is a gift that's so special he can't just give it to her when it arrives. It's a gift that she would love so much and be so appreciative for that there has to be a special occasion for him to give this gift. So he has it shipped to a buddy's house so it doesn't come home, and then he goes to the buddy's house when it arrives, and he takes the gift, and he hides it in the closet where they keep the coats and hats and gloves and scarves because it's July, and they don't need those. But as the year goes on, it begins to get colder, and his wife one day says to him, you know, we should really bring out the coats the gloves, the scarves, the hats. And he's like, yeah, babe, don't worry. I'll take care of that. And so then he hides the gift underneath their bed because he can't imagine why anyone would ever look underneath the bed. And then he realizes one day while he's never looked under the bed in his life, his wife actually vacuums under there. And so he can't keep the gift underneath The bed anymore. And so he's like, where am I going to put it? I can't put it in the garage. She'll see it when she comes out of the car. I'll take it to the basement where the spiders live. She'll never go down there. And he goes to great pains to hide this gift from his wife until the time is right because it's just too special. She is just too special for it to be presented in a very random fashion. And so Thanksgiving comes and then they put up their Christmas decorations, which is the correct order, in case you're wondering. Well, where are my people at? Oh, 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 I just lost some of you. But that is the correct order. It says it in the Bible. And if you want to argue with the Lord, that's on you. But I, I'm not going to fault you for that. But they put up their Christmas decorations and the tree is up. And sometime that week, he wraps the gift. And what I mean by that is he takes it to his mom and has her wrap it for him. Because it's too special for him to wrap. And he places it under the tree while she's not looking. And his wife comes out one day and sees this gift under the tree for her. And she's overwhelmed with excitement. It actually looks like it's been wrapped very well. So she doesn't even think her husband bought it for her because it looks so good. And then Christmas morning comes and she unwraps the gift and in a flurry, in just a few moments, what was left of that wrapping paper is now all over the floor. Isn't that strange what we do? Isn't that strange that we go to such great lengths to wrap a gift for people that we love, to hide gifts for people that we love, only for in a moment that wrapping paper to be torn off and thrown aside? Why do we do that? I think one reason we wrap gifts so intentionally for people we love is that we want them to su- be surprised when they open it. We want to surprise them. I just want to tell you something about me. I hate surprises. So if, if any of you for any reason would ever get wind of a surprise party for me, please be my friend and tell me. I hate To be surprised, so much so that when I was a kid at Christmas time and there were gifts underneath the tree, I would sneak out of my bedroom at night and belly crawl on the floor into the living room and take a gift each night into the bathroom and cut the paper open and look and see what was inside. And then I'd tape it back up and then I'd report back to my brother who was too much of a coward to get out with me, but was not too much of a coward to rat me out nonchalantly one day. I'm not bitter about that at all. But I hate surprises, I hate to be surprised. and uh, uh, The thing about gift wrapping is really strange to me, but wrapping a gift is much more than surprising a person, isn't it? It has so much more to do with what we think about the person and what we think about the gift. Wrapping gifts is actually an ancient practice. It's been happening for thousands of years. For us in the West, wrapping gifts really became popular in the Victorian era when gifts were wrapped in tissue paper had a bow tied around it, and then presented as a gift. And this continued until about 1917, when a store in Kansas City ran out of wrapping paper one day. So they started selling the patterned paper that was used to line envelopes as wrapping paper. And this was such a hit that they quickly sold out of that. And this store, which eventually became Hallmark, was the birthplace of the modern wrapping paper Industry, and it's become such a part of our lives that a study in 2017 suggested that up to $10 billion in sales per year was made just on wrapping paper. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds right. It, it's also suggested that Americans throw away, once we've unwrapped the paper at Christmas time, we throw away up to $4 million tons of wrapping paper. That's the Empire State Building 11 times. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems right, doesn't it? It seems right. I think one ton of it is always at my house on on Christmas. It's such a part of our culture, and there's some psychology to wrapping gifts because wrapping a gift actually changes this impersonal object into something very personal. It now is a thing that I wrapped and gave to you. So now you think of the gift as that thing, Joe got me, or that thing you got me. It's something that changes what the gift is. Wrapping says that the gift is actually very special. Wrapping says that the person receiving the gift is very special. Now the Bible tells us that God loved us so much that he gave us his son. And this is, just so you know, we're not like trying to do any kind of cute reveal and like keep you guessing as to what the gift is that we're talking about here at Christmas time. Like we always say the answer is always Jesus. Like the gift that we're talking about is Jesus that's no surprise to us and the Bible would tell us that God gave us this gift in fact he promised to give us the gift of his son millennia ago but what did he do he kept him hidden for centuries until the perfect time had come Galatians 4 7 says when the fullness of time or when the perfect time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman he waited for the perfect time but he kept this gift hidden and then finally when the perfect time had come he delivered his son this gift into the world and actually wrapped him. And I want you to read with me in Luke chapter two. If you have a Bible there with you, go ahead and turn there to Luke chapter two. We'll read in verse one. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the words up on the screen. But I want to read this. It's the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Or, or a census should be taken, and the purpose of this was for a tax. Boo! This was the first registration or census when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Why is this important? Why are these details in this passage here? We don't need to know that to know about Jesus. We don't. We don't need to know any of that to to know how much God loves us. But, but that's in there to show us that that the birth of Jesus Christ took place as an historical event at a specific point in time. There's a moment on the calendar when it occurred. The author is giving us a backdrop to that. This census that Caesar Augustus commanded to be taken so that they could increase tax revenue for what at that point was the very new Roman empire is historically accounted for outside of the bible you can read that caesar augustus ordered this census to be taken and the way that they did it in many areas particularly in the land of israel was that they had each person return to their family's ancestral homeland my grandma is from herrick illinois anybody know herrick illinois Okay, a few of you, unfortunately, are familiar with that town. It's out in the middle of nowhere, right? My my grandma, who's 92, still refers to that as home. She hasn't lived there in probably 75 years, but she still calls Herrick home because that's her ancestral homeland. I often say, if someone says they're from Herrick or mentions Herrick, I will say, oh, my family is from Herrick. And so they had them travel to their ancestral homeland, to Bethlehem, which is kind of the Herrick of Israel. And so they travel there. Verse three, Joseph went up from Galilee to the town, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. His great, 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 great grandfather, David, was from Bethlehem. And he went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed or his engaged the person he was engaged to. And, and the betrothal process for them is different from engagement for us. Here, we give a ring and say, will you? And they say, I will. And that's it. For them, it was actually a, legal, a legally binding thing. They were contractually obligated to be married. They just were not married yet. He went there with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. This is a very important line because she's pregnant and they're not married yet. Pastor Josh did a great job of explaining that story. What happened there is that one day Mary, who is a virgin, has an experience where an angel appears to her and says, God's spirit is going to perform a miracle in your womb and you're going to give birth to a son. And she says, "I, I don't. I don't really know how I can give birth. I'm not married. I've, I've never been with a man before. And he's like, did you miss the miracle part, Mary? A miracle will take place in your womb and you'll give birth to a child who will literally be the son of God. Nine months go by or 10 months, whatever it is. It's confusing to figure that out. But the time goes by and while they were there, verse six, the time came for her. To give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger now i want to talk for a moment about him being wrapped in swaddling cloths because that's not what i meant when i said jesus was wrapped when he was placed into this world that's kind of cute and we see that in the manger the nativity scenes that we look at look at that he's kind of wrapped bundled Uh, But that's not what I'm talking about when I say that he was wrapped. But it is important to pay attention to that because here's what it tells us. It tells us that Mary was an intentional mother with her new baby who swaddled him so that he would be comfortable and be able to sleep well. She wanted to help him be safer. And it also tells us that it's just a very ordinary experience. That was just what mothers did with their newborns. They wrapped them. They swaddled them in swaddling cloths so that they would be more comfortable. Maybe they slept better that way. I don't know. But it was an intentional and ordinary thing. And and here's what we need to know about the birth of Jesus, that it was a very ordinary experience. It was just a birth. There were perhaps thousands of babies born that night. It's just an ordinary and common thing. Babies are born every minute. The birth of a child is so ordinary. What makes Jesus's birth unordinary in a practical sense is that he's born in a barn because there was no room for them in the inn that they wanted to stay at. So he has to go, his family has to go and give birth to him here in this barn, and that's a very unordinary thing. Of all the other babies born that night, I doubt that many of them, if any at all, were born in a barn like Jesus was. And there's something else very unordinary about the birth of Jesus, is that while all the other babies born on the earth are the physical son of a father, Jesus is the only virgin-born baby born that night, ever born, the only person who's ever been wrapped in, the only person who is God wrapped in human flesh. So Jesus was wrapped, but it wasn't the swaddling claws that I'm talking about. See, God wrapped the gift of his son Jesus in human flesh. Theologians refer to this experience of God being wrapped in human flesh in the person of Jesus as the incarnation. And I'm not talking about the instant breakfast that some of you may drink, but the incarnation comes from a Latin word carne, which literally means meat. Maybe a better way to translate that is flesh or skin. An easy way for me to remember what incarnation is, is to think of chili con carne, which means chili with meat. The incarnation, Jesus, is God concarne. <laughs> God with meat, God with flesh on. God in, wrapped in human flesh, God con carne. Why is this so important to us, though? Why do we sing, hark the herald angels sing, which is my favorite song? Not my favorite Christmas song, my favorite song in the world because of the line, veiled in flesh, the Godhead. See, hail the incarnate deity. And here's my favorite line, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why is it so important? Why would we sing about it? Why would we talk about it? It's important for a few reasons, and I'm going to go through some of them very quickly. Number one is it's important that he comes to earth in human flesh because he can now be my example. I can look at another living human being and see what it's like to live a life that is completely submitted and completely obedient to God's will. Jesus is my perfect example. He's also my perfect substitute. Me, in my sinfulness, and all of us in our sinfulness, we have offended God with our sin, with our rebellion against him. And this offensive rebellion against God has separated us from him so that now the only way for God to be satisfied is because of this offense toward him, is to destroy the offender in his great holiness and his great perfection. That is the only way he can be satisfied. The problem with that is he loves the offenders too much. He loves you and I so much that he chooses not to destroy us, but he comes to earth in human flesh and becomes our substitute. And when Jesus laid down on that cross and was crucified for our sins, he became our substitute. It should have been our cross. But he took our place there. Oswald Chambers says this: God made his own son to be sin that he might make the sinner a saint. All through the Bible it's revealed that our Lord bore the sin of the world by identification or substitution, not by sympathy. He deliberately took upon his own shoulders and bore in his own person the whole massed sin of the human race. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. And by doing so, he put the whole human race on the basis of redemption. He became my substitute, identifying with the human experience This is a really cool thing because all throughout the Old Testament, there were limits on how close people could get to God and how close God could get to people. And so there was this great misunderstanding about who God was and what he's really like. And there's this gap between God and man that God can't get so close to people. And he doesn't fully grasp in an experiential manner the human Experience, but when God comes to the earth wrapped in human flesh, in the person of his son Jesus, we have for the very first time a moment where God can actually be touched. All throughout the New Testament, we read multiple stories of people touching Jesus. There's the story of a woman who had been ill for 12 years and spent all her living trying to fix this problem she had where she would profusely bleed and there was no cure for her that could be found and she'd almost given up hope but she'd heard that this man named Jesus was performing miracles for people. And she believed that maybe he would perform one for her. And so she squeezed her way through the crowd. If you've ever tried to walk fastly, if you remember far back enough through the Decatur celebration, if you've ever tried to walk quickly through that crowd, how difficult it can be, she's squeezing her way through. And the Bible says that she touches just the corner of Jesus's garment and of his robe. And the moment that she did that, she was completely healed because a human being could actually now touch God. She was completely healed. We're told the story about a man named Thomas, one of Jesus' closest friends, his disciples who, after Jesus has died and raised from the dead, and other disciples who saw him raised from the dead begin to report this story. Jesus is alive, and Thomas doesn't believe it. He says, unless I see the nail prints in his hands, unless I see the holes in his hands where they drove the nails into them to crucify him, unless I I put my hand in the wound in his side where they drove a spear into his side, unless I can touch... Touch him physically, I will not believe. And he turns around to leave, and bam, Jesus is standing there and says, Thomas, why don't you reach out your hands and touch me where they drove the nails into my hands? Why don't you put your hand into my side where they drove the spear? And the Bible says that Thomas fell on his knees and was given faith because he got to touch God. In fact, in that moment, he exclaims, My Lord and my God. We're told about a man named John, one of Jesus' closest friends, perhaps his best friend, the Bible tells us, that, who wrote the book of John and the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. He's kind of a big deal in the New Testament. We're told of that man who, who at times would sit next to Jesus and lean his head against him as though he was weary. And the Bible tells us that he was the one that Jesus loved, or in other words, his best friend. And John is the one who wrote that about himself, that I was the one that Jesus loved loved and he was able to say that because he got to touch god and lay his head against god and that's really really awesome that they could touch him isn't it but i've never got to do that terry i never i never got to touch jesus i've i've never seen him in the flesh I haven't gotten the opportunity when I was in pain and, and feeling sick or feeling hopeless to reach out and touch him and be healed. There have been moments where I have felt like I was losing my faith and I would have loved to touch those nail-scarred hands and put my hand in the wound in his side and just know that Jesus was real, I haven't got to do that. There have been times where I have felt unloved and unlovable, and it would be awesome if I could just lay my head against Jesus's chest and feel him there, but I've never done that. this can become a hurdle in our faith because it usually doesn't feel like Jesus is present with us because we don't have a physical body to hug. We don't have a hand to shake. We don't have a hand to hold. We don't have a hand on our shoulder from Jesus telling us everything is going to be all right. First Peter verse 1 chapter 1 verse 8 says this, though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him anyway. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him anyway. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, unspeakable joy that you can have. Even though you don't see him, you can still believe in him. And I believe that this is true, but sometimes it just doesn't feel that way. Can we just be honest for a minute? That sometimes it just doesn't feel like Jesus is as close as he was to the disciples it doesn't feel like he was as close and as real as he was to the woman who suffered. It doesn't feel like he's as close and as real as he was to the people he encountered. So what are we supposed to do with that? We don't We don't get to experience Jesus in the flesh. Or do we? I want to read to you an email I received from a friend this week who um, was quoting a friend of theirs who'd recently lost a loved one and had this to say to the church. In the next few weeks, and especially as you hold services on Sunday and on Christmas, it's what we're doing here, probably half of the people that walk through those those doors are going to be incredibly broken, like way, way broken. They may have lost a loved one this year, They may be suffering from their own physical or emotional pain, and they may be affected by another person's brokenness and are in distress. And I can assure you that they are not looking for answers or platitudes or to have Bible verses thrown at them like we've done this morning. (laughs) They don't want to hear about how they just need to pray harder or have more faith that they just need to fake the joy until they're filled with joy. You know what they really need from you, the church? They need you to meet them in their brokenness and just sit with them. They don't even need in that moment to hear that Jesus is sitting with them because in that moment, you are Jesus in the flesh. You may be the only representation of Jesus that they meet. And if you don't validate their pain, and if you give them pat-canned answers, and if you throw Bible verses at them, they will reject that. But if you look them in the eyes, if you listen to them, if you simply say, I am so sorry, and I don't know what you're going through, but I'm willing to hold your hand through this, and you just show up for them, they will experience Christ in a way they never have before. We have to do this better you don't have to fix their hurt. You just need to sit with them in that hurt so that they know they are not alone. I wanna read this line again. They don't even need to hear that Jesus is sitting with them because in that moment you are Jesus in the flesh. I said that I've never experienced touching Jesus Physically, I've never experienced him in the flesh, but that is not true because I experienced Jesus wrapped in flesh every time I experience Jesus wrapped in you. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that we, the church, are the body of Christ, the physical representation of Jesus on the earth. We are his body. We are imperfect. We are Ordinary and some of us unordinary. We are common and yet He still lives in us. He's still wrapped in human flesh and it's in you and I, the church. This gift that God has given to the world that He wrapped in His Son Jesus is still wrapped. In the church. And the incarnation is important because, in this way, through us, now Jesus not only experiences empathy as a human being, but can express it to other people through us. He experienced empathy because he went through what so many humans go through suffering, loss, betrayal, eventually death. I was thinking about all of the terrible experiences that a person can go through in their life and how Jesus experienced those things. Just a few of them. Word got out that his mom and dad weren't married when he was born. And so later in life, he was accused of being an illegitimate child, which in that time was a very shameful thing. Jesus experienced that. Jesus, at the night he before he was crucified, is alone with his closest friends in the Garden of Gethsemane, experiencing what can only be described as a horrible panic attack, as he's overwhelmed with anxiety. And the Bible says he sweats great drops of blood. It's so bad. Jesus was arrested. He knows what it's like to be Arrested. He has experienced so many horrible human experiences, and because of that, he actually can empathize. And as Chambers says, not just sympathize with us. The difference between sympathy and empathy is that sympathy feels for people. I feel so bad for that person and what they're going through. Empathy feels with people. Wow, I can really imagine how hard that can be right now. Dr. Brene Brown says, empathy is like seeing someone down in a hole in the darkest, loneliest moment in their life. And empathy crawls down into the hole and says, I know that it's dark down here. So while you're down here, I'm just going to sit with you so you don't have to be alone. Sympathy pokes its head down the hole and says, wow, sure does look dark down there. Empathetic statements rarely start with the words, at least my marriage is falling apart. Not not mine. I'm I'm quoting like a person. Like I'm not confessing. <laughs> my marriage is great. I'm, it's great. We got a kid on the way, so super good. You know, that's what that means. That, yeah. No, it's, no. But like like someone says that. Like I had to cha- watch the way I say words, Jeff. But someone says that my marriage is falling apart. Imagine saying, well, at least you have a marriage. Yeah. Well, Melinda she is just failing at school well at least Justin's doing well that just never helps does it <laughs> e- empathy never says at least empathy never uh, brings that exp- at experience that way what it does is it comes and it sits with another person in their brokenness and experiences Experiences or attempts to experience with them what they're experiencing without just trying to give all the answers. Isn't that what Jesus did? He came to this earth and he said, You want answers? Just come be with me. (laughs) He says, I know you're lost and, and you're far from God, and I know you're hurting, and I know that you that you have no hope in this world. So I'm just gonna come down and take on that hurting, hopeless, helpless experience. If you want to think about God becoming helpless, think about him becoming a baby who is so helpless that he requires another human being to survive. God came and experienced that very thing. And the Bible says in Colossians 1, that Christ is in you. Now I read that and I read it as, yeah, Christ is in me, which I believe is true. And I will say this, sometimes we in the church have said this thing, like, if you just ask Jesus into your heart, he will forgive you of your sins, he will save you, and to a degree, I think that is kind of, like, true, maybe, but the the idea of asking Jesus in your heart is not in the Bible, can I just say that, can we just be, can it just be real this morning, Terry, that's not in the Bible, say that, we don't find it in the Bible anywhere. But it's easy for us as individuals, especially in our our individualistic context, to read scriptures like that. Christ is in you and say, yeah, Christ is in me. But in the original language, the word you is a plural word. And the King James Version actually gets that one right. When they use their these and their thous, they're trying to give us a difference between the plural and the singular. And we see that in that verse in Colossians One, it says Christ is in you, literally meaning Christ is in all of you. So when I read that, I say Christ is in us. Christ is in us. It's this experience of us together as the church, loving one another, being loved by one another. Spurgeon said this, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church and have not found it perfect, And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it for it would not have been a perfect church after I'd become a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it's right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it's right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. We need one another because we are the body of Christ. The Bible gives us this great picture of the church as the body of Christ. And it says that Jesus is the head of the body. He's in charge. All the orders come from the head, from Jesus. The rest of us are the members of the body. Some of us are hands. Some of us are feet. Some of us are elbows. Some of us are armpits. But we all have an important place in the body. And without the body of Christ, the church, we cannot embrace Jesus. We only embrace Jesus in embracing his body. Jesus is still wrapped in human flesh. It's at the right hand of God in heaven. The Bible says he's still in his body that he rose from the dead end. And he's across from the table as you sit with another Christian. He's still wrapped in human flesh. I want to read the quote from that email again. You know what they really need from you, the church? They need you to meet them in their brokenness and just sit with them. They don't even need in that moment to hear that Jesus is sitting with them because in that moment you are Jesus in the flesh. I suspect today there are maybe a couple of groups of people here, some of us, are those who've walked in broken and hurting and feel way, way far away from God. And all we need is just somebody to sit with us and be the presence of Jesus to us. Others of us are hoping to to serve another person by enhancing their life with our Bible verses that we can share with them. We hope that we can get them to change their mind about something if we just continue to say the truth to them. We, we hope that we can change their life if we just keep telling them what they're doing wrong or if we just keep saying things like, well, at least, why don't you just look at the bright side of things by trying to be positive to them. And those of us who are like that, we just need to shut up <laughs> and just sit with people who are hurting. Just sit with them. And be Jesus to them, with them. Let them experience God wrapped in human flesh in us. Will you pray with me, Lord? We're so thankful that you came to this earth as a human being. You took upon yourself the human experience. You know what it's like to live like one of us. And we're grateful that you would that you would do that. We're grateful that you would serve as our example and our substitute. Lord, we're grateful that that people got to touch God through touching you. But Lord, we're we're so grateful now that we still get to experience you that way through one another. I thank you for the church. I thank you for our church Renaissance. I thank you for the 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 presence of Jesus, God's son, that I felt in the presence of the people in this church. I thank you that my life is better because I've experienced you in them. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to have that mindset that we are Jesus wrapped in flesh. Christ is in us. As we serve and love people, help us to keep that in mind. Lord, we love you, we appreciate you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at Rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.